I continue to be amazed at the way that God orchestrates our worship services. Jared had too busy a week to actually prepare a psalm this week, so he used one that he had written before. I had no idea he was going to be speaking to the importance of table fellowship, but you'll see why that becomes important soon. So we are reading from Exodus, from Leviticus, and from Acts today, starting with Exodus 24, verses 1 to 11. These are God's words. And he said unto Moses, that is God said unto Moses, Come up unto Yahweh, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near unto Yahweh, but they shall not come near, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh hath spoken will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of Yahweh and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the mount and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel who offered ascension offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh hath spoken will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the very heaven for clearness. And upon the nobles of the sons of Israel he laid not his hand, and they beheld God, and did eat and drink. Now Leviticus nine fifteen to 24 and he presented the people's oblation, and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slew it, and offered it for sin as the first. And he presented the ascension offering, and offered it according to the ordinance. And he presented the tribute offering, and filled his hand therefrom, and burnt it upon the altar, besides the ascension offering of the morning. He slew also the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons delivered unto him the blood which he sprinkled upon the altar round about, and the fat of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covereth the inwards, and the kidneys, and the lobe of the liver, and they put the fat upon the breasts. And he burnt the fat upon the altar, and the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before Yahweh as Moses commanded. And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from the peace offering, uh, from offering the sin offering, and the ascension offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared unto all the people, and there came forth fire from before Yahweh, and consumed upon the altar the ascension offering and the fat, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Finally, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. They then that received his word were baptized or immersed, and there were added unto them in that day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all that believed were together 
and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all, according as any man had need. And day by day, continuing steadfastly with one accord in the temple and breaking bread at home, they took their food with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to them day by day those that were saved. These are God's words. Please be seated. We have been looking at what makes a church a church for the last couple of weeks, and we've laid a good foundation, understanding that the church is the body of Christ, a unique government unto itself, and then we've filled in some details of that by examining the key elements required for a church to be a church, and we looked last week at the paradigm, the the pattern that is established in Acts chapter 2, and how it is also expanded in various ways in Hebrews and Revelation. And what we found was that there are three ways, at least what we found last week, was that there are three ways that a church must be a church, or three things that it must do. Or maybe better put, there is one fundamental thing, and that has the aim of achieving two other things. The foundational thing is that the church must assemble together. This is the prerequisite for everything else that it does. It cannot function as a church without actually congregating, without gathering. This isn't merely a matter of practicality that has been overridden by the internet. It is a matter of essence. The church is actually constituted in its assembling together. And as we saw in Hebrews 12 last week, when the church gathers, it ascends into the heavenly places to the true Jerusalem, the true Mount Zion, having access to the true Holy of Holies, after which the earthly temple was modeled. We not only can come before God in the Holy Spirit through the way made by his Son, but in fact we are commanded, we are summoned by God to do so in just the same way that he summoned Israel to worship him on Mount Sinai. We are not at liberty to do anything else on the Lord's day. And Hebrews 10 gives dire warnings about those who trample the blood of Christ underfoot by neglecting God's summons. We also saw that God accepts even two or three people gathered in his name as a legitimate church, although, of course, that is hardly ideal. It is nonetheless valid. Now, the purpose of the assembling together. Well, last week we saw that it was twofold. We looked at two major purposes last time. As we'll see today, these are not complete, but firstly, we saw that the church gathers to devote itself to the apostles' teaching, that is, to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It must continue steadfastly in this doctrine. It must fulfill the Great Commission by teaching everything that Christ commanded, applying all of Scripture to all of life, since Scripture is profitable to fully, to completely equip the man of God for every possible good work. And secondly, we saw that the church gathers to put this teaching into action, to apply it through fellowship, which is a very weak English word for the Greek term koinonia, which I think is better translated mutual participation, although that is a bit more of a mouthful. If teaching is related to faith, then this second aspect, fellowship or koinonia, is faith working through love. This is what is traditionally called church discipline, which does not mean church punishment, but is much more like self-discipline, only congregational. But of course, it can involve the sorts of things that we tend to associate with discipline. For Paul tells Timothy, them that sin reprove in the sight of all, 
that the rest also may be in fear. That's 1 Timothy 5.20, and that that is really hardcore by today's standards. But a church that does not do this is actually failing as a church. I don't mean that pastors should expose people's private sins from the pulpit, of course, because Matthew 18 teaches us how to handle sin within the church. But it is referring to public or high-handed sins, which must be dealt with in a public or even high-handed, as it were, way. Or perhaps to a communal sin, which must be dealt with in a communal way. And you've seen an example, as Jared and I have indeed gently reproved the negative culture which we were starting to establish, while also indeed reproving ourselves and confessing our part in it and repenting of that. That is what mutual discipleship should look like, at least as it begins in worship. Obviously, it continues throughout the week, and we'll see the importance of that later on. Now, at the end of last week's sermon, I pointed out that actually we've only covered the first half of Acts 2.42, which establishes this pattern for early church worship. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. We've looked at that. Those are um, instruction and, and mutual discipleship. But it goes on, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, what about those? What I want to suggest to you is that the breaking of bread and the prayers is actually there to clue us into the fact that what the church is doing here in Acts is indeed worship. Specifically, it is a continuation of temple worship of the old Mosaic system of offering sacrifices. That might sound very strange to you, and you might think that I have become some sort of Hebrew reconstructionist. That is not what I mean. Here is what I do mean. We know that the church is the house of God, which is to say the temple of God. Paul writes to Timothy in order that he should know how to conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and base of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. This language is Old Testament language. The house of God is the temple. And Peter too speaks of how we come to Christ, a living stone rejected indeed of men, but with God elect precious. And so ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 2, 4-5. Now, obviously, this is Old Testament language. From what, what Peter says here, the church is not only the fulfillment of the temple, as Christ himself is, so are we, but also the fulfillment of the temple sacrifices. In other words, We are not merely the true temple in which God in the person of the Holy Spirit dwells. We are also the true temple in which true sacrifices are offered to our God in the Spirit and in truth. Now this fits with 100% with what we have read in Hebrews about what is happening when we gather to worship. Offering sacrifices, true sacrifices, which are the substance of the shadows of the sacrifices which were instituted under Moses, offering these true sacrifices is a necessary element of being the church. A church cannot be a legitimate church. It cannot be accepted as part of Christ's own body without doing this, at least under normal circumstances. Think of Israel. We're the fulfillment of Israel. Think about how absolutely critical the continuation of the temple sacrifices were to Israel's identity to its existence as Israel. 
Israel without the sacrifices could barely be recognized, for it would not be God's people if it did not offer sacrifices to God. It would not be a worshipping community without temple sacrifices at the center of that worship. Of course, we know that there were times in Israel's history when the sacrifices were neglected. Times such as during the reigns of the wicked kings of Judah who came before Josiah or before Hezekiah. And I'd like to suggest to you that we are actually living in a time much like that now when the law of God has been forgotten and the proper sacrifices in the temple have been abandoned. That is the state of the Western evangelical church today. Just as Josiah tore his clothes when the book of the law was discovered and had to inquire into what he should do to recover and restore and reform the worship of Judah, so we are in a position where congregations today should tear their clothes, not necessarily physically, but you can if you want to, and seek to recover and restore and reform the worship of the church. I will talk a little more about this next week because it helps to understand how we got here. But the the current crisis that the church is facing, um, as far as I understand it, is primarily a result of abandoning the Reformation itself. We tend to think of the Reformation as being really about recovering certain doctrines, sola fide especially. But by all accounts, while these doctrines were of critical importance to the Reformation, the Reformers themselves saw what they were doing as being about recovering the practice of true worship. And that included a certain kind of liturgy, not unlike the liturgy that we use at Redwood. It was heavily inspired by many of the uh, Reformed liturgies, and also weekly communion. These things lasted only a very short time before the Puritans threw them out again, But while the Puritans did many good things, unfortunately, in this, they were essentially reverting back to the Dark Ages, to the way that worship was practiced in the medieval church of Rome. Because what they were doing was throwing out much of the true sacrifice that takes place in the true temple, the church. In our call to worship today, God commanded us to bring an offering. Well, what kind of offering do we bring? Look at Psalm 50. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it, but I will read it to you. Verses 17, uh, sorry, verses 7 to 14, and at the end, verse 23. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices, and thy ascension offerings are continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God the sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. Excuse me. Whoso offereth the sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifieth me. And to him that ordereth his way aright will I show the salvation of God. What God says here to Israel is, in fact, prophetic of the church age, for he says that he will no longer require bullocks and he-goats, but rather their sacrifice shall be their thanksgiving. Now, you probably know that this is not the only place in the Old Testament where God makes clear that bulls and goats are not the true sacrifices that he wants, but are only symbolic of them. That the true offerings, the real offerings, the offerings in spirit and truth that his people give to him are spiritual. 
you've almost probably heard Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Wherewith shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with ascension offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed me, O man, what is good. And what doth Yahweh require of thee but to do justly and to love kindness and to walk humbly with thy God? The New Testament, of course, confirms that these are the very kinds of sacrifices that we offer. Hebrews 13 says, Through him, then, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of lips which make confession to his name. But to do good and to mutually give, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And Paul refers to the charity of the Philippians as an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable well-pleasing to God. The New Testament, in other words, does not do away with sacrifice, as we tend to think. It does not do away with sacrifice at all. Rather, it fulfills sacrifice through the work of Christ. It presents the true reality of sacrifice and thus establishes the real meaning and the real practice of sacrifice. So far, so good. Nothing terribly controversial, I I, I would hope. But you will now say to me, non, these are things that the church does all the time. Sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and gifts of charity and hospitality are not limited to Sundays. They are not things that are exclusive to worship. And that is true. But they do flow out of worship. The sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, that is prayer, and the sacrifice of hospitality, that is table fellowship, are patterned for us in worship. We plant the seed of those things in worship, and that seed grows during the week and during our lives and bears fruit. These kinds of offerings were the true sacrifices of God's people even under the Old Covenant, even under the law of Moses. And God initiated them, set the pattern for them in special sacrifices at the temple. It was not enough to love your neighbor and to praise and thank God in your heart during the week. You were still expected to bring sacrifices to the temple. God actually sets a very clear pattern, a very consistent pattern in what temple worship looks like. And it is not really very much how we tend to imagine, certainly how I tended to imagine, and how I've noticed other Christians tend to imagine it today. These things were shadows, we know that much, but shadows of what? How are they fulfilled? We tend to think of temple sacrifices purely in terms of atonement, but is that correct? If they are not just purely about atonement, then what is their substance in the church? What is the type that the anti-type fulfills or vice versa? How are they summed up in Christ? And how do we participate in their summing up through our union with Christ? Well, to answer that, we need to actually know what they look like to begin with. So let's return to Exodus 24. It's on your sheet. Just to give you a little context, God has initiated the covenant with Israel in Exodus 19. He then established the basic obligations or duties of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, in chapter 20. 
And after that, he gave applications of those 10 laws with a series of examples or case laws in chapters 21 to 23. So in chapter 24, what we have is basically this is the time to confirm the covenant with Israel. Israel has now heard all of God's laws, as we indeed see in chapter 24 itself. Moses writes it out and he reads it all in their audience, and then they have to ratify it. They confirm the covenant. What I want you to notice about this chapter is that it is Israel's first worship service. It sets the pattern and plants the seed from which all of Israel's later temple worship grows. Now, I'm not actually going to really talk about this idea of covenant renewal or covenant confirmation as a point of worship, but I I point it out here because it will become important as we look more at what worship is in the coming weeks. But what this does is it sets the pattern and plants the seed from which all of Israel's later temple worship grows. And indeed, which is fulfilled in the worship that we do in spirit and in truth as the true temple offering spiritual sacrifices. The pattern that we find in Exodus 24 is that there are ascension offerings and then peace offerings, and we'll get into what these mean, and then Moses and the elders go up the mountain and they eat and drink with Yahweh himself. Now this is very important, this sequence, ascension offering, peace offering, and eating. Keep that in mind. Now look at Exodus, uh, Leviticus chapter 9. This is, again, an inaugural worship service. This is the inauguration of the tabernacle itself. It follows a very similar pattern to Exodus 24, but it is more involved. There are more sacrifices. But you can see near the end that there are three main sacrifices which are called out. The sin offering, the ascension offering, and the peace offering. So Leviticus 9 adds the sin offering on the front of the pattern that we find in Exodus. And then the rest of the pattern is the same, except there's no eating with God, right? Well, not so fast. Leviticus 7 actually gives very clear instructions for how the peace offering is to be conducted. Now, for the sake of time, I'll just read verses 11 and 15. This is from Leviticus 7. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which one shall offer unto Yahweh. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his oblation. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. You see, the peace offering is the meal. A peace offering is actually a meal with God, and this is the whole point of it. God gets the fat, which is the best bit. That's why Israelites weren't allowed to eat fat. That's for God. And he gets certain other parts, and then you eat the rest of the meat. Instruction and mutual discipleship happened every Sabbath in the synagogues. From the very beginning in Leviticus 23, God established holy convocations each Sabbath day. And that means a formal assembly where people were called out and required to gather to hear the law and to receive instruction throughout the land of Israel. And that's why the Levites lived among the people. They didn't have their own territory so they could fulfill this duty of teaching and discipleship throughout the land of Israel. But this synagogue worship was not complete without the sacrifices that could happen only in the temple because that was only where God lived. It was not because they imaged the necessity of sin, uh, the, the, the necessity of death for sin, although that was part of what they were doing, but primarily because they imaged communion with God. Now, in the modern church, thanks again largely to our friends, the Puritans, I'm afraid, we have gotten a very strange idea of worship, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament or covenant. 
where everything in the church is the fulfillment of synagogue worship. It's all about instruction and discipleship. And everything that Jesus did is the fulfillment of temple worship. So you've got this strong bifurcation. The synagogues are all about temple, uh, about instruction and discipleship, and the temple was all about atonement. So the temple system in this thinking was purely to image atonement, and so it is done away with in Christ. And so it is therefore not fulfilled in us at all. It is only fulfilled in Christ. But that is not the way that Scripture itself depicts things. Scripture, as I've said, depicts us as little temples, and this gathering right now as a true temple, offering true spiritual sacrifices to God. So it is rather important to understand just what exactly was happening in the temple sacrifices and what made them important as acts of worship rather than just as acts of atonement. Of course, the atonement for sin is fulfilled in the cross. But what about the worship aspect? How is that fulfilled? Well, what was happening in the temple was that the worshiper would come to God. He would offer a sacrifice for his guilt. This was the sin offering to purify himself and make himself fit for God's presence. Now, if you have been following our liturgy, this will start to be uh, this pattern will start to look familiar. He would offer a sacrifice for his guilt. He would purify himself to come into God's presence. Then he would make an ascension offering in which he identified himself with the animal by pressing his hand onto its head before completely burning it on the altar so that it rose up to God in the form of fire and smoke, which, of course, is the way that God himself appears to Israel. So it is integrated into his glory cloud. And then finally... He could offer his peace offering, his shalom offering. There is really no good word in English to translate the Hebrew word shalom. It refers to much more than just peace. It refers to wholeness and to communion and to prosperity. So he would offer this shalom offering where he and God would eat together. This is very easy to miss in scripture because it's actually so basic that it's like it's just taken for granted without necessarily being mentioned. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where you remember that Elkanah, the husband of Hannah, he would go up from his city year to year to worship and to sacrifice unto Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. And when the day came that he sacrificed, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but Yahweh had shut up her womb. It's 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Now, what did he give to Hannah? Portions of what? Portions of the peace offering. They were all eating together with Yahweh. And because Samuel, uh, because uh, Elkanah loved Hannah, he gave her a double portion of that meal. Most of the places that scripture describes sacrifices or temple worship, eating isn't mentioned. And this isn't because it wasn't happening but because it was so fundamental to the whole point of temple worship that it would be weird to mention it. It would be like me saying, you know, I went over to Mark and Emma's for dinner and we ate the dinner. Like, what else would I be doing with the dinner? So, for instance, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 62 to 66, you will read about the enormous numbers of animals that Solomon sacrificed when he brought all Israel together for the inauguration of the temple. And we think, wow, that's a lot of animals. It's really showing how much wealth God blessed Solomon with, that he could spare that many, and how much Solomon wanted to glorify God with such a great offering. Well, 
kind of, but that's not really the point. The point comes in verse 65 and verse 66. So Solomon held the feast at that time, feast, notice that word, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamat unto the brook of Egypt before Yahweh our God, seven days and seven days, even 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went unto their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that Yahweh had showed unto David, his servant, and Israel, his people. The word to note there, of course, is the word feast. What were these people eating for 14 days? They were eating the peace offerings. That is why there were so many of them. This was a great feast that they shared with Yahweh. In the same way, speaking of the very first worship at Mount Sinai now again, where Israel received and agreed to the covenant, we read about this in Exodus 24, Moses describes this in advance to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1 as follows. So afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said unto Pharaoh, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And God describes the Sabbath itself as a feast that sets the pattern for the six greater feasts that Israel must observe every year. So that's in Leviticus 23. I think that in the church, the word feast has become Christianese. And I'm pretty sure, I hate to rail on the Puritans, but if you remember how the Puritans conducted Sabbath worship, I'm pretty sure that this is their fault. We read the word feast, and instead of hearing a large elaborate meal or a celebration with a meal, we hear a special day or a holy ritual. Well, feasts to Yahweh were special days and holy rituals, but they were much more fundamentally large celebratory meals. And that is why the temple is called God's house. It is where he lives, and Israelites got to come to that house and have a meal with God sometimes. God invited his people to his house, or maybe more correctly, he summoned them to his house for dinner on special days. They would have to come in the correct way. They would have to purify themselves. They would have to follow all of the instructions. And they were not able to enter into the the true dining room, as it were, in order to share the table with him directly because the way had not yet been made by Jesus. But the point of them coming was to share a meal with him. Jared put it this way. He said that the table is where the, the man enjoys the fruit of his labors, and his children enjoy him. That is what was happening in the temple sacrifices. God was enjoying the fruit of his labors, which were his people. The works he gave them to do, they bring back to him in the form of these animals, and they eat together. And they, of course, would enjoy him in turn. That is what they were doing when they worshipped. So in a very important sense, the meal was fundamental to worship. Now, I'm only giving the briefest of overviews, but I know that we have talked, at least in passing, about the symbolic importance of eating the same food, how it builds those who eat it up into a single substance, into one being, as it were. Well, that is the idea here. You are partaking with God of the same food and thus sharing most intimately in his own being. Food is where communion happens. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 18. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? 
seeing that we who are many are one bread, one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Have not they that eat the sacrifices communion with the altar? Here Paul explicitly links the Lord's Supper with the peace offering. He says this is the same thing. It is the same principle. The shadow after the flesh, as he puts it, points to the reality after the spirit. The peace offering is a communion meal. So if the peace offering is, at least in some very important sense, the the point, the whole point of temple worship, then the communion meal is, at least in some very important way, the whole point of true temple worship, worship in the church. If you're worshiping without the communion meal, you may not be missing any other element of worship. You may not be missing the reading of the word, instruction, discipleship, confession of sin, prayer, song is another one which the New Testament adds. You may not be missing any of these things, but if you're missing the breaking of the bread, then you are missing the point. This is why when Paul rebukes the Corinthians, saying when you assemble yourselves together, it is not possible to eat the Lord's Supper, the way he describes it is when you come together. It is something he takes for granted about when they assemble that they will celebrate or try to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It is the regular practice because you don't worship without including the point of worship, which is communion with God. In the preaching of God's word, we hear the Lord, but it is in the breaking of bread that we recognize and remember the Lord, that we experience the Lord and renew our communion with the Lord. Think of what happens on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. They drew nigh unto the village whither they were going, and he made as though, as Jesus, made as though he would go further. And they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And he went in to abide with them, and it came to pass, when he had sat down with them to eat, he took the bread and blessed, and breaking it, he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Was not our heart burning within us while he spoke to us in the way, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they rehearsed the things that had happened in the way and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. If you know your Bible, you know that the word know is an especially pregnant word. I use the term advisedly. God is, Jesus is, known to us in the breaking of bread. And this is something that I want to investigate more deeply, perhaps next week, because it gets us into many deep questions about worship that we really can't answer today. What I want to emphasize today is simply the nature of worship as communion with God. The way that the purpose of the Old Covenant sacrifices was to symbolize, to model for us, ascending to God after having ourselves purified in order to eat with him. This is precisely what happens in New Covenant worship, or at least what it should happen in New Covenant worship. Having been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, we have access to the heavenly sanctuary And indeed, we come into that sanctuary when we gather every Lord's Day as we ascend into the very throne room of God himself. So why would we not complete our worship? 
It is like coming to dinner with someone, spending time, well, first you wipe your boots off at the door, then you spend time with them in the lounge, talking, and then just as they're about to serve the meal, you leave? No, that is not how true worship should be done. We dare not worship in such a way, lest we be found despising the gift of God, purchased at the infinite cost of the very blood of his only begotten Son. Let us rather reform our worship to align with the practice of the early church in Acts 2, devoting ourselves not just to instruction and mutual discipleship and prayers, but to the breaking of bread also. We must be careful to fulfill what is written in Malachi. This is verse 11, chapter 1. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the name, uh, the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith Yahweh of hosts. And this is, of course, speaking of the church age. And the incense is the prayers of the saints, which are mentioned in Acts 2. And we see that explicitly correlated in Revelation chapter 5. The, the, gold, the golden bowl of incense is said to be the prayers of the saints. And so the pure offering then in Malachi would correspond to the communion meal, to the breaking of bread in Acts 2. This has been the practice of the church since the beginning. Consider the first apology of Justin Martyr, which was written in 155 AD. He says, On the day which is called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the countryside gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. Then, when the reader has finished, the president, in a discourse, admonishes and invites the people to practice these examples of virtue. So that's instruction and mutual discipleship. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And, as we mentioned before, when we have finished the prayer, bread is presented and wine. So here we have, about a hundred years after the establishment of the early church, the same elements of worship that we find in Acts 2. Instruction, mutual discipleship, the offering of prayers, and the Lord's Supper. The church of Acts knew that offering sacrifices, true sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, which are the substance of the shadows of the sacrifices instituted under Moses, that this is a necessary element of being a church. And so they did that. Now, I've barely scratched the surface of this. I'd say if there's one topic that we, we could probably consume every sermon from now until Judgment Day, it would be worship and sacra- sacraments. I haven't really gone into what is happening in the Lord's Supper beyond the, the most cursory connection back to the peace offering of the Old Testament. I haven't answered what to do when you are practicing the Lord's Supper without elders. Although, as you know from last week, we saw that churches did not always have elders when they were first planted and yet were considered churches. So if the Lord's Supper is truly fundamental to worship, as I think it is, I think we've seen that, then they must have been practicing it. I have not even begun to think about many logistical questions, you know, like how should we go about doing the Lord's Supper? What kind of bread should we use? And um, how should we use, you know, tiny cups or a communal chalice? And should it be distributed or should people come up individually? Many of these kinds of questions obviously need to be answered before we can actually start doing it. All I have wanted to do today is show that the Lord's Supper is fundamental to worship in the true temple, the church, for the same reason that the peace offering was fundamental to worship in the historical temple, the shadow of the church. I hope you will feel free to ask questions as we fellowship over a meal later, even though it is not the Lord's meal. And I hope that you'll also bear with us and be patient as Jared and I are still ourselves working through many of the questions that you also have. 
getting worship right is really important. It is the most important thing. So we are in a very difficult position. We, we feel great urgency to work everything out so that we'll not be worshiping wrong, and yet great hesitancy to work everything out too fast and to be hasty about making decisions lets we start worshiping wrong. So we covet your prayers and your counsel as we seek the Lord's will and wisdom in these matters. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the clarity that it has when we dig into it and come to it with a spirit that desires to understand what you have done in history and what you are doing in your church and the way that you work in the true temple that is built up through the body of Christ. Please give us wisdom as we try to reform our worship further, as we seek to honor you in all of the things that you have commanded and seek to set an example that other churches also would be able to follow as we seek to reform the Church of New Zealand, as we hope to set a, a, a pattern that other churches can look to and be inspired and say that is how God has indeed commanded us to worship. Please give us not just wisdom but strength to be able to do that, to be hearers of your word, to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. And please be with us now as we continue to worship and as we fellowship over a table. In Jesus' name, amen.